questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, to be on a truth quest rather than an I'm right quest. You can subscribe for this podcast anywhere that you get your podcast. If you'd like to support the show, then if you're on YouTube, you could subscribe, ring the bell, like, and share. If you're on Facebook, you could share and like it as well. And uh, you could leave us a review, hopefully a a good review, if not, whatever. Um, But you can leave us a review um, wherever you're getting your podcast at. Uh, So we take time to look at questions, Through the lens of Scripture, our desire is to know what God's Word says. We have a question already ready to go, and that is from a previous Q&A. And uh, the question is, are there people healed in false teachers' uh, services? Uh, I've had this question before myself. You get a lot of faith healers um, that are nothing more than shysters. I certainly want to be careful not to judge people but there are a lot of guys that just put on a show and they've been caught doing it over the years. And um, my dad, who died of Lou Gehrig's disease when I was 14 years old, had gone to see one of these guys and was uh, taken advantage by them. And um, I've often wondered, are people genuinely healed? You've got a faith healer who's nothing more than a shyster. He's doing it to make money. Um, Some of these guys collect their mail, get the checks out of it, throw the prayers away. They've been caught doing this. Um, We know that they're not really doing it because they genuinely care for people. They're doing it because they can make money and they're preying on the most vulnerable. Um, I've said, I've heard Chuck Smith say, I wouldn't want to be these guys on the day of judgment. And um, there are a few guys that I can think of that I wouldn't want to be on the day of judgment because you're taking, care, you're taking advantage of the most vulnerable out there. But when you hear that someone goes to one of these guys' um, uh, one, of, one of their events and then they're healed, you wonder, did they really get healed? Now, I'm not sure that with a lot of these guys that there are any documented cases. These guys travel around they pray for people, and when tried, when, when push comes to shove, they can't put any documented cases together. Now, that's not saying that there are not documented cases of healings. My, um, my mother-in-law was diagnosed with lung cancer, I don't know, 12, 15 years ago now. They, they did a uh, biopsy. It came back as lung cancer. They went in and took that lobe out, and when they biopsied it, we had prayed for her, we had anointed her for oil, it was gone. Um, others have had cancer and we've prayed for them and they've passed away from it. Uh, so I'm not saying that God doesn't heal. I'm just saying that these guys that are nothing more than shysters are there cases where people get healed uh, at their event or can good things happen? Can they go and hear the word of God? And, you know, maybe they're, they've got, you know, 20% of their teachings that's heresy and they quote scriptures and are talking about things that are right on. Um, But here's the thing. I think that God honors the hearts of the people that attend. That these people who are sick, who, um, who are in a wheelchair, who are bound, who just have struggles and difficulties, these guys are just trying to make money on them. I think that sometimes God can look at the heart of the person that is there and respond to their heart, despite the fact that they are just around someone 
who desires to take their money. Um, I would say one of the ways that you can tell whether or not they're genuine is how much of an emphasis they put on money. It's not wrong to pass an offering plate. It's not wrong to take a collection, but it is wrong to manipulate people to give. And that's what you see. And a lot of excuses were made back when Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were doing their thing, that the phone banks that were up, a lot of, a lot of people defended them when it came out that they were just ripping people off. And Jim Baker even spent some time in jail um, because of that. And that's the case with some of these other guys. I can think of Peter Popoff, um, who was caught. Uh, he would have people stand up, tell them you know, something about themselves. They were caught with a trick. It was like a parlor trick. Um, and they were caught by doing that. And there are others that do the same thing. And just because you might hear that someone gets healed is, is in no way some kind of, of God saying, these guys are, are good and you should listen to them. Be very careful. A false teach, a, a solid teacher uh, may teach something that's wrong, but he's teaching a false teaching, but he's a good teacher and he's a solid teacher. And there may be one area that they're not right in. Um, these other guys are full of, they're false teachers. They're never called by God to be teachers. They're using the gospel, the word of God, religion, to be able to get rich. And that's always a problem. So are there some people that are healed in false teacher services? I don't know. I think God could, by his grace and mercy, reach out and help someone that is in need. But I think for the most part, God's not listening to their prayers and he's not behind it at all. And I think that they are um, very, <laughs> very wicked people. I'll put it that way. They are very wicked people to take advantage of people. So it's good to see you guys. Uh, if you have a question, we want to welcome you. If this is your first time at our, our Truth Quest Q&A, uh, we take questions through the comments section on Facebook and on YouTube. Uh, if you're watching this and you want to join us, we do it most uh, Wednesdays and most Saturdays at three o'clock. Write the word question or put a question mark in front of it so that we can identify it as being a question and uh, then we'll get to it as we get a chance to. So we have our first question that comes from JG. JG, good to see you. JG comes to us from YouTube and JG says, are the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates in Revelation 9, 14, and 15 good holy angels, or are they bad or fallen demons? Uh, thank you, uh, JG, I appreciate that. Let me go ahead and look this up. So let's go to uh, Revelation 9, 14, and 15. We'll see if we can gain anything um, from these. So it's the, it's the sixth trumpet here. Let me go ahead and bring you on the screen here. All right. So it says, I'm going to start from verse 13 because that's the beginning of this little section. Um, then the sixth angel sounded and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the six angels who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for that hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. Now the number of the army of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them as thus I saw the horses in the vision of those who sat on them had a breastplate of fiery red. All right, so um, 
JG, I think, uh, first of all, um, I'm not quite sure. Let's see if we got uh, where you're at here. First question. Uh, there you are. Okay. So, um, I, I, I would think that they would be demonic spirits that are released on the earth for that very thing. Um, but I am just answering a question off the top of my head. And it's been a lot of years since I taught line by line, verse by verse through the book of Revelation. I've done it several times, but it's been a lot of years. And so I don't want to say 100% just because I don't want to say if I'm not going to be correct. I would want to spend a little bit more time looking into it. I know that we had a question kind of along these same lines that we had some questions about earlier with the woman who rides the beast. And um, I did a little bit of research on that and I'm ready to kind of cover that a little bit more in the future. And I'll do the same thing here with this. But I'm going to say a cursory reading of this seems to me that these are fallen angels that kill all of mankind. Although in the Old Testament, there were angels that killed, that fall, there are fallen angels who killed a great number of people. Um, in the Old Testament, there were angels that killed a great number of people too. And these would be angels that are sent by God who are good angels instead of bad angels. I'm going to take it that these are demonic spirits, um, although I'm not 100% sure. Sorry not to be um, really, really helpful on that question, JG. All right, so we have a question from Dan. Uh, Dan joins us from Facebook. Uh, Dan says, um, I have dealt um, I have dealt a wonderful blessing this week, Pastor. How can I thank God besides being faithful to God and praying to Him? Is this all God needs for us to thank Him? I want to genuinely thank God for the blessings that came to me. I hope this question isn't too childish, but I want to know how God knows that we are thankful to him and what he has provided for us. Um, Pastor, any thoughts on this? Thanks, Dan. I appreciate uh, your question. I'm going to go ahead and take it down. Um, yeah, I, I think that God, well, God wants us to have a thankful heart no matter what. The Bible says, be thankful in all things. We're supposed to enter into his presence with thankfulness. I think it's really easy for us to forget how much God really blesses us and have blessed has blessed us. And I think it's our, we should have that desire to be thankful like you do, Dan. And I appreciate that. You know, the Bible says it's the goodness of God that brings about repentance. And sometimes when we get blessings, it causes us to evaluate where we are, make sure we're doing things that are right. God knows your heart. God knows what you're praying. God knows that you are thankful. And I would say, be thankful to him actually pray and thank him and make that a regular part of your prayers, Dan, that you enter into his presence with thanksgiving in your heart, like the Bible says. Just saying, Lord, I'm so thankful for all you do. I'm thankful for this particular blessing in my life. God knows if we have that thankful heart and that thankful spirit, it should be something we live with because I really believe we can always find things that we are thankful for. And it really is a wicked thing to not be thankful. God blesses us in so many ways. And it's such a good thing for us to be able to be thankful for all that God gives us. I appreciate that, Dan. And I think it's a really good heart to say, I really want to be thankful. And how can I make sure uh, that I'm going to do it? All right. So we have a question here from TC. TC says, do angels go in and out of morality and immorality? What is a good area to look at the Bible for studying about angels. Uh, there are a few passages, uh, TC, that you could go to. 
uh, that would be good. I would think that studying angels in the book of Daniel and angels in the book of Revelation would be really good because you find them there a lot. It tells us that I think angels are involved in our lives on a regular basis and angels are involved in the church. Just like there are demonic forces that are trying to battle against us, we have angelic forces that are on our side that are sent to minister to us. Um, but I would encourage you, if, if I were going to do an overall study on angels, I would start by reading any passage in the Bible that has to do with angels. I think that, that one of the places that I would start would be just, I would just Google, what does the Bible say about angels? I would open up a notes on my phone and then I would use my YouVersion Bible to, to read, to look it up, to copy and paste into my notes. Uh, I would keep any notes that I have underneath them in my notepad uh, so that I can go back and study it later. So that it, it's such a broad subject that it's really hard to dive into 100%. Um, but it's something you could do over months or even years that you have just a note set up on your iPhone to be able to take notes. And that's the way I do it. You might have something else. I mean, you can use a pencil and a piece of paper, right? You can keep a file on angels while you're studying it. That's kind of the old school way to do it. But that is the way that I would do it and um, study everything that the Bible has to say about angels. Um, you've got angels that are around the birth of Christ, the resurrection of Jesus, the end of the world, um, angels all the way back in the book of Genesis, you've got the angel of the Lord. So I think that any of these could be good places to start to look at angels. But, but maybe the best place to do would just be to do a search. Um, what does the Bible have to say about angels? Start keeping notes on that. Look for things that really speak to you and, um, and, and what it says. All right, so thank you very much. I really appreciate that, uh, TC. Hopefully uh, that will be helpful. We have a question here from uh, from One God Seven Seven Seven. Good to see you, One God Seven Seven Seven. And if you are new here with us, um, then uh, you can submit your questions by writing your question, putting it in the comment section, putting question or a question mark or a, or a Q in front of it and then reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, okay? Question, can my Christian friends baptize me or should I go to a church? Uh, I, I think your Christian friend could baptize you. There are no restrictions or guidelines that we find in the Bible as to what person can do that. I would say, especially if they are, I would say especially if they are a a good friend of yours that really loves the Lord or they're a mentor, maybe they brought you to Christ, um, then that's good. You really want it to, to, to be something you remember. You want it to be something special. And uh, so I say, you know, you're not just swimming and then somebody decide, hey, have you been baptized? I'm gonna baptize you. I'm not saying that would be wrong. I'm just saying you want it to be something distinct and special, something that you're doing for God. So yeah, there is no restriction on who you can be baptized by. I think it can be any Christian who baptizes. And so uh, again, hopefully that'll be, um, that's, uh, that will be helpful to you. Uh, One God 777, I appreciate that. All right, 
So um, if you are new here, we really appreciate you guys joining us. Uh, if you have any questions, then write out the word question and then write your question after it and we will get to it as it is brought in. I have another question that was from a previous Q&A that I want to look at. Um, it's did the gospel writers uh, use, should be, um, did the gospel writers set up a writing, <laughs> did gospel writers um, set of writings called Q. Okay, so did the gospel writers use a set of writings called uh, Q, the Q? Um, and so there are those who believe that because so much of the New Testament is, so much of the, the gospels, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the same, that they used a, a writing that we don't have, which they have called Q. Uh, there, it's never been discovered. Uh, it usually is those that do not believe that the Word of God, don't, they don't believe in the Word of God. They believe that it's natural. They don't believe it's supernatural. So they try to ascribe why there are similarities that are in these documents. They believe that it's written after 70 AD, uh, and then they say that, that they took Q and they, they read it. But most scholars now are believe that the Bible was written sometime, that the Gospels were written between 50, somewhere in 55, 56, 57, before the destruction of Jerusalem, not after it. And there's no evidence that they used one manuscript. It could be, and probably better is, that it's events that are true. And because they are true, they are similar. And even though they're coming from different people, the connection is that they are true events that people are talking about from their own places. And there is absolutely no evidence that there is any set of, uh, any writings that, that are called Q, any set of it. Um, it. It's just that it's the truth. And that's what I believe. I believe that it was written earlier. And like I said, many scholars are coming back to this where they are now looking and seeing that the gospels and the rest of the Bible was written when it said it was. When I first started pastoring in the early 80s, there was a lot of critics who said that it was written hundreds of years afterwards. But all of that has gone out the window now. There's too much evidence for the early writings of the gospels. Uh, and the rest of the New Testament. So uh, again, that was submitted a while ago. Thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, we have a question from Renee. Appreciate uh, your question, Renee. Renee says, is it okay for women to become pastors? Thank you, Pastor Robert. Um, so uh, there, in theology, there are complementarians and there are egalitarians. Complementarians believe that women and men are equal, but they have separate roles. The role of the husband would be the leader of the home. The role of a man would be the leader of a church such as a pastor. Egalitarians believe that those passages that speak of such things are, uh, are customs from their day and not to be applied today. And so they would believe that the role of a husband and a wife in a home is not as clearly defined and also the role of a pastor at a church is not as clearly defined. Uh, I, we are, we are complementarian, meaning that we believe that women and men are equal, but they have a distinct role. There is an extreme complementary in which believes things that are really bizarre 
we are not that. We are complementarians that believe that women and men are equal and that a good leader will take into account those who are ministering alongside of them and can see gifts and callings in women and women can have roles in leadership. I even believe that women can be called pastors. I think you could have a woman, um, a woman's pastor for that, that heads your women's studies at your church. I think you could have a woman pastor that head, is heading the Sunday school. The Bible says, let women teach other women and the, young, and the children. And so this is a very, something that is very biblical and I don't know why they couldn't be called pastors. I do know that there are those who don't agree with me that think that the pastoral role is only for men and that women can't, be, uh, can't serve that role of shepherding but I think that women do that with other women and children. And so I do believe that they can be a pastor, um, just not a senior pastor at a church or the lead pastor, whatever word you would wanna use um, at the church, um, but that they could pastor uh, the kids, the youth, uh, women's, um, they could be, be a pastor on staff for women, uh, a woman's pastor and so on. Um, like I said, this is somewhat controversial, Renee, but I do believe that that can be the case. I think that, that churches that are weird in the complementary area miss out on a lot of what's available when women are so gifted in so many areas, uh, either even you know, above men. I shouldn't say even above men, but above men. And when you don't take advantage of those that are gifted and skilled who want to be used by God, I think that there can be a real problem with that. All right. So thank you, Renee. I really appreciate that. We have another question from Barbara who says, uh, can a person who has accepted Christ as savior lose their salvation? Thank you, Barbara. Um, I, I appreciate your question. Um, so this is called perseverance of the saints. And there is tension in the Bible when it comes to who was involved in salvation and who keeps your salvation. What I mean by that is the Bible tells us that God draws people. No one comes to the son unless the father draws them. So God's involved in people getting saved. I like to compare it to a marriage where two people take vows and then they are married and God draws us and we choose him and then we are saved. God may draw people who don't come to him and they're not saved, but God draws people respond and are saved. In Philippians, we are told that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in us. So God's the one doing the work, but we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. I do also know that reformed theology, uh, this is one of the doctrines of reformed theology, of Calvinism in general. Uh, there are several points of Calvinism that I disagree with. I don't believe in limited atonement, that there are only certain people that can be saved, and there are some people who can't be saved. I don't believe in irresistible grace, meaning that the people who are gonna be saved are saved no matter what. I believe we have to choose and that we can make decisions that when the Bible says, choose you this day and whoever will believe is really literally means whoever. But the question, can you leave your salvation? Can you lose your salvation might not be the best thing, but can you leave it? Can you deliberately leave it? It's not like, oh, oops, I lost my salvation. I don't know where my salvation is. Now, I've always said with this question, 
that it is, it, it's a question that really doesn't need to be asked because those who believe that you can lose your salvation believe that a person that is an apostate, that is they were a Christian and now they walked away, they believe that they were, they were a Christian and they walked away and that they need to come back and be saved. A person who believes that you can't lose your salvation, when a Christian becomes an apostate, they believe that that person never was saved and needs to get saved. So if we take this person you're talking about and he accepts Jesus as a savior and then he walks away from God, he deliberately chooses, I'm not gonna follow God anymore. There's nobody that says that that person is okay. Everybody says that person's not saved. Those who believe in once saved, always saved are gonna say that he was never saved. Those who believe that you can lose your salvation are gonna say that he lost his salvation, he's not saved. And that's why I believe that this argument is a moot argument. We shouldn't spend time arguing about it. Uh, if push comes to shove, I like to say, if you put a gun to my head and make me tell you what I believe about whether or not you can lose your salvation, I would say you can't. This is the one point of Calvinism that I lean towards. I lean towards that when you make a genuine commitment to Christ, you are born again and God works inside of you and God knows your heart. And even if you walk away, he's gonna leave the 99 and he's gonna go after the one and God's gonna do whatever he can do. I know I walked away from God when I was 18 years old and God came after me. I knew that God loved me, wanted me, draw me, drew me back because he came after me. It was, a, it was an experience in my life that I can look back on and know that God truly does love me and has truly called me because he came after me. And I think that that's the case for someone who was, has made a genuine commitment. There are couple of people that I think of someone who worked with John MacArthur for years and then walked away. And John MacArthur will say that he was never saved, even though he worked with him. There was an associate of Billy Graham that walked away. Uh, again, people are going to say of, uh, I think his name was Templeton. Uh, people are going to say of him, he never really had a commitment, so he needs to be saved, or he walked away from it and he needs to be, he needs to come back and be saved. Uh, I'm, I'm not 100% sure. There's, there's passages that I read and go, yeah, boy, you can lose your salvation. Then there's passages I read and go, no, you can't lose your salvation. And I think that that tension in scripture is meant to be there. And maybe we'll have the real answer to it. Maybe you can, but it's very difficult. Maybe you can, but it's very difficult. But once you do it, you can never come back again. Kind of, it's impossible to restore them to repentance. But I would lean towards, you can't lose your salvation. It's the only point of Calvinism. Um, you say, well, you don't believe in depravity, not the way that Calvinists teach it. I believe we are totally depraved, but not like Calvinists teach it. Uh, there's a um, there's a difference between the way that they teach it and how I believe that we are totally depraved. We can't save ourselves. God's got to be the one to do salvation. He did all of the work upon the cross. I can't do it on my own. Um, I don't even think that I can truly come to him without him drawing me. It's got to be God drawing me, but I believe that God draws all kinds of people who don't make commitments, who don't follow after him. 
So thank you very much, Barbara, for your question. Hopefully that is helpful to you. If you have a question, you're joining us today, uh, then uh, we'd love to have you uh, give us a write down your question in the comment section below. We'd love to receive your questions from you. Now write the word question before and then reread it a couple of times, make sure uh, that it makes sense. Uh, we have a question from Andy and uh, Tanya. Andy and Tanya says, why uh, were a lot of biblical books, the Apocrypha, removed from the Bible? Thank you, Andy, for your question. Um, and I wanna say, first of all, they were never removed. The Apocrypha was not removed. The, the Old Testament, that we, uh, the Apocrypha are books, the, the word Apocrypha means hidden, and they were books that were put into the Old Testament with the Jerusalem Bible, and some other Bibles. The Jerusalem Bible is the Bible the Catholic Church uses. And we, as in Protestants, use the same Bible that the Jews use for the Old Testament. And I don't believe that there were any group of people that determined what is canon and what isn't. I believe that rather the early church discovered what was scripture. They discovered what God had inspired because the 66 books that are in the Bible are extremely unique. And when you get to the Apocrypha and you begin to read them, you realize they're different than the other 66 books that are in the Bible. You see that there's just weird stuff that are that's in them. And I don't, I'm not saying that they might not be helpful. The Maccabees, um, uh, some other of the, the Apocrypha, um, the Book of Enoch, can be helpful, especially to understand that temple period Jewish mindset and how they were reading the Old Testament and even the New Testament when they found it. We can get ideas to what they saw in their culture and their idea so that they can be helpful, but they were never removed. Instead, they were added by people. And a lot of times they were added because they want to defend what they believe about certain doctrines by going back to the Apocrypha. So the, the reason that we don't use the, the Apocrypha and believe them is because the original, the, the, the Old Testament we got from the, the Jews doesn't have it in it. And then it was added later on. So no one ever removed them from the Bible. All right, Andy and Tanya, I appreciate your question. I think that's important to understand there are a lot of, of books that are out there that come from the time that the scriptures were written that are not scripture. There are certain qualities that scripture has and the early church discovered them and believed them. And uh, don't, uh, don't believe the whole Dan Brown stuff about how the Bible got together and, and who determined it and the council that determined it because there was no council that determined it. It was the Bible as we know it was put together very early in church history. And there were some questions about James and the book of Revelation, but other than, um, and, and, and determined overall that they should be kept in there, but nothing was ever removed from the Bible. So thank you very much uh, for your question, Andy and Tanya. I really do appreciate that. If you have any questions, then you can write the word question down or a cue and go ahead and submit uh, your question into the comment section below. All right, so we have a question from Michelle and um, she says, what about backsliding? Or is it Michael? Um, what, what about backsliding? So um, backsliding is when a person is following Christ and then they walk away. 
you either drift away or you make a decision that you're going to walk away from God. And that would be backsliding. What happens to a person who is backslidden when they die? I don't know. That's God's area. I think about me walking away from God. The pastor that I of the church that I attended had an affair with the secretary. I, I got to see what a church scandal did firsthand there at that church. And I walked away because of that. And um, I, had, I, I, I believe that I had problems in, in my life, otherwise I wouldn't have walked away. I don't wanna blame him for it, but that's what happened. I said, if this is what Christianity is about, then I don't wanna be involved in it. And I walked away for a year and I walked away. If I believe that if I would have died during that time, I would have been saved. I believe that there would have been there would have been no rewards for anything during that time, but I believe that I would have been saved. So someone who was backslidden, would who, uh, would it, would it, are, are they saved or not? Um, push comes to shove, I would say that they are and God's going after them and they're going to come back. Um, could I be wrong about that? Perhaps, like I said, maybe it could be, you know, someone could be, it's very hard for them to get to the place where they walk away and are not saved. I think that's gotta at least be the case. Um, and uh, there might be some who want, it, it may be that when you, once you finally do fall away, that you can't come back. Um, you know, that might, that might indeed be the case. All right, so we have a question from Sharon. Sharon, thank you for your question. Question, I find it interesting that we're, we're 12 tribes, um, uh, patriots, patriarchs of Jacob, 12 disciples, apostles. Ishmael had 12 sons or princes. Will Ishmael's son, sons receive any acknowledgement in eternity? All right, so I find it interesting too. In Revelation, you have the 24 elders, and we're not told exactly who they are. Many believe that it's, it's the 12 apostles and the 12 sons of Jacob. The, the number 12 seems to be a biblical, it's one of the biblical numbers that you find it coming up over and over again in scripture. I don't know. I, Ishmael's sons receive any acknowledgement in eternity. Uh, was Ishmael genuinely saved? Were his sons genuinely saved? I don't know whether they believed God and were accounted to them as righteousness. I don't think there's any way that we can know that. But I do think it's interesting. The number 12, like the number 40, the number seven, the number six, three, one, are all biblical numbers that you can come back and you can see that they come up again and again and again. And um, it's, um, it's, it's interesting. So thank you, Sharon. I really appreciate your question. If you have a question, then you can um, write it down in the comment section below, reread it a couple times, make sure that it makes sense, and then go ahead and submit it. Uh, we have a question here from Tim. Tim says, um, Matthew 7, 21 through 24, speaks a bit of losing our salvation. Your comment, who was Jesus talking to? All right, so let's take a look at Matthew 7, 21. Um, all right, let me go ahead and pull that up. Matthew, oops, let me try this again here. There we go. Matthew 7, 21. Gotta be an easier way to do this, right? All right, let me go ahead and bring you in here and we will uh, take a look at it. There we go. All right, 
so um, Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Then here's your verses. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, those who practice lawlessness. Um, so, yeah, I don't think that this verse is dealing with saved individuals at all, okay? So let's just take it from the beginning. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So there are people who are going to say, Lord, Lord, who are not going to enter into heaven. They think they're saved. They are people that have gone to church. They are people who have who have um, done that, that, that maybe grew up in a Christian home, maybe grew up in a Christian family, who believe that they are right, believe that they have a right relationship with God. Uh, they are people who um, never really had that genuine commitment to Christ. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So that's the sign for the way that you know whether or not there's, you're genuinely saved. Because if you have a real, genuine commitment to Christ, then you want to do what God calls you to do. I'm gonna find your question here. You have a real, genuine commitment to Christ, then you wanna do the very things that God asks you to do. Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll keep my commandments. Uh, also, um, John 1 says, if you say you love him, but you don't keep his commandments, then the truth isn't in you. So one of the evidences that you've really made a commitment to Christ is that you want to do the things that God says. So not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, because that's the sign that you are genuinely saved because you're doing his will. Doesn't mean you always do it. Doesn't mean you don't blow it. In John 1, 8 and 9, it says, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in you. And then it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. We also know those who practice sin aren't going to make it into heaven. So we don't want to be practicing sin. Well, you can make all kinds of confessions, but if you are practicing sin, then you're not going to make it into heaven. Those do not inherit the kingdom of God. It goes on to say here, many will say to me in, the, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? So there's nothing here that says that these guys are genuine. Maybe they really didn't do it. Some will say, um, we cast out demons in your name. I know people who think they've cast out demons and haven't really cast them out. They're using some weird uh, deliverance kind of lingo. It's not biblical at all. And they're declaring people to be set free from spiritual things. Um, and they haven't cast out demons at all many wonders in your name. We know the Antichrist does lying wonders. And are there demons who can do that as well? And maybe they, they really didn't do wonders. I think of someone declaring that someone is healed when they're not really healed, right? And maybe they think that they've done it, but they haven't done it. And then I will declare to you, I never knew you, depart from me. Because they don't really know him. They think that they're saved, but they're never saved. Depart from me, for I never knew you. And that tells us this is not people who are um, who are saved at one point. He says, I never knew you. That's verse uh, 23. Let me read that to you again. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So the question is, is someone who genuinely, genuinely knew him, 
can that person be cast away by God? We know that these guys did not genuinely know him. So no, it doesn't speak of those who can lose your salvation. It just speaks of people who look like Christians, act like Christians, walk like Christians, smell like Christians, but they weren't, or they think that they are. They think the things that they're doing are okay. Uh, there are a lot of people like this and that are Methodist, Lutheran, Catholic, Calvary Chapelites, Catholics, uh, that believe that they are religious and that they're following God, but they're not. They've never known him. So you want to make sure that you are genuinely saved. And the Bible tells us that. Examine yourself. Make sure that you are really saved, that you really have the faith. Don't, if you think, well, how do I know that I'm genuinely saved? Because there's been a transformation. Because God's worked in your life. And I tell people, if you don't know if you're saved, then call out to God so that you can get the confidence that you know you are saved. I do believe that the enemy sometimes comes in to genuinely save people and tempts them by trying to, to get them to think that they are not genuinely saved. However, um, I don't believe that's the case most of the time. I think that someone who says, I never knew you, and when Jesus says to them, I never knew you, that he never really did know them. And so this passage does not speak of them. Um, now you went all the way through to 24. Let me go ahead and read 24. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on a rock. Okay. So again, when you are saved, you hear God's word and you do them. It doesn't mean you do them all the time. It doesn't mean you keep his commandments all the time, but it certainly means that you do them. And it's rarer for you to break them than it is to do them. And in fact, I think far rarer for those who are genuine Christians who have really made a commitment to Christ. So thank you uh, very much, Tim, for your question. I appreciate that. And I appreciate you sharing uh, the scriptures so we could put them up on the screen. All right. Um, so we have a question from Barbara. Barbara says, question, my granddaughter is concerned about having doubts at times about God, things she prays about not changing. She's worried God will be angry with her. Uh, thank you, Barbara, for your question. The um, doubts are a normal part of what we go through. And sometimes people confuse confidence with a lack of faith or confidence with faith. They think if I'm really confident about it and I never have any doubts, and I'm confident that it's true, then that's what faith is. That's not what faith is. Faith and confidence are not the same thing. Faith is when you do what God said, even though you might doubt it some. I use the example often of Hebrews chapter 11, the children of Israel follow Moses to the Red Sea. Pharaoh, goes back on his word and comes in to attack them. They're between two mountains where they've gone up to the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army is right behind them and they are trapped. And so Moses begins to pray and God tells Moses, stop praying and lift up your rod. He lifts up his rod and then the, the Red Sea parts and Moses commands him to go through. And I think of the person standing in the very front. And this is a make-believe person, but I think it could have happened, who said, I'm going to wait till someone else goes through. I'm not going to go through until some of you go through, you know, Moses. But someone behind him says, I'll go through. 
and they, with great confidence, somebody was the first one into the Red Sea. And I got to believe that's a person with confidence. There might have been people right next to it in the front. They looked up at the wall of water and they thought, hmm, I'm not sure that I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm not sure that I trust this. Now, they finally went in and everyone went through. Who got saved? Those that had confidence or those that doubted? The question, the answer is they all got saved. They all went through the Red Sea, even though they might have had doubts. And so God doesn't, we, we live in a world where we have to believe to be saved. So it's not 100% confidence. It, it isn't surety. We're not saved by surety. We're saved by faith. We're not saved by 100% confidence. We're saved by believing. Now, there's there was a person that approached Jesus that his son, I believe, was demon-possessed. And the man asked Jesus, if you can do anything, then would you heal my son? And Jesus said, if you believe, all things are possible. And he said, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. He identified his unbelief and asked for help with his unbelief. And Jesus delivered his son, even though he didn't have 100% confidence, even though there was some doubt. When someone is doubting, I say, welcome to the club. Take your doubts to God. God's big enough to handle those doubts. Go and truly search the things out. See whether or not the doubts that you're having are true. Again, we're on a truth quest. We want to know what the truth is. And I would say to your granddaughter, hey, doubts are okay. Take your doubts to God and, and really search it out. When, when you doubt something, you can really pour into the Bible now to see whether or not that is true. And if you come to the place where it's not provable by the Bible and you say, I struggle with these doubts, just come to God and say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. At some point, you have to say to God, all right, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to trust you. And it's without 100% certainty because we believe and are saved. And we say, Lord, I trust you and I believe in you. I know I think I told you about, I think it was Templeton who had doubts and walked away. Billy Graham had some doubts and he talks about those, but he made a commitment to believe despite his doubts. I've had doubts, but have made a commitment to believe despite the doubts. The person that has faith is the person that does it. Who says, Lord, I believe you and I'm going to live for you, and I'm going to follow you. So God is not angry at her because of her doubts. Take her, your doubt, her, her doubts to God. And whatever doubts that she has, begin to research them. Tell her to look them up, to really look to see whether or not it's something that can be taken care of or, or something that you can have confidence with. I found that most things that I've had doubts about, I come to the place where I have great confidence in what I believe. That doesn't mean I have 100% confidence on everything because we are saved by faith. It's just not blind faith, right? Uh, faith, I've said before, is a leap into the light. We have the evidence that we find in scripture and we can, there might be things that we don't know the answers to, but I like what Pastor Chuck Smith used to say, I will not trade what I know for what I don't know. So what do we know and what are those doubts about? And can you really pour into it? Maybe there's doubt that they believe that whether or not Jesus existed or the resurrection. It's amazing that there are actually 
the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus and for the existence of Jesus, that you can go in and find what these are to really be able to deal with it. But um, I've been there before. She's worried God will be angry with her. I've been there before. I know what it's like to have doubts and to struggle through them and to wonder whether or not you should really follow after God and how God's going to feel about the doubts that you have. But just know it's not doubt, faith, and confidence are not the same thing as long as you do it. You might wonder whether or not doing it is the, is, is um, really true or what God has said is really true. But when you do it, you demonstrate that faith and God honors that faith. I think of Thomas when Jesus showed up. Thomas said, my Lord and my God, and fell down on the ground. There was enough evidence to really cause him to believe. So if she finds herself doubting, I would say, go pour, look, look these things up. Really, we, we live in a time when we can research it uh, and we can be really confident. If we have a heart to know what the truth is, then we're truly on that truth quest. All right, so I hope that's really helpful, Barbara. I feel bad for her, but I think that this is something that many Christians go through and that we need to understand that faith is faith. It's not 100% surety. All right, so thank you very much, Barbara, for your question. I really do appreciate that. We have another question uh, here from Sean. Uh, Sean says, what does the Bible say about treating other, other beings such as animals? Um, all right, so Sean, thank you very much. And if this is your first time here, I want to welcome you. Sean comes to us from YouTube. Um, when the Bible in the Old Testament talks about taking a life for a life, it talks about man being made in God's image. And because of that, when you take the life of a, of a man or a woman, you're taking the life of someone that's created in the image of God and God says, if you do that, then your life will be taken from you. That's in the Old Testament. So there's, if you take the life of an animal, it is not the same as taking the life of a human because a human was made in the image of God. The Bible also says a righteous man eats what he kills. So the idea of just gratuitously killing something, just to kill it, is not really a biblical idea. You want to eat what you kill. I have hunted for years. I haven't hunted in a long time, but I, I hunted for years. I was an archery hunter. Uh, I hunted javelina. I hunted deer. And um, I wanted to eat what I killed. And so I ate javelina. And uh, there came a point where I gave it away. Uh, however, a righteous man eats what he kills. Uh, he doesn't just let it go to waste. And God said in the book of Genesis that now they could eat animals after the flood. Before that, they didn't eat animals, but after they flood, they could. Uh, so I do think that someone who kills just for the sake of killing, that there's a problem with that. I think that if you're killing to be able to, like in, in the olden days, to be clothed or killing to, today they'll use every part of the animal, and I think that that's okay. So as far as treating animals, Hey, look, someone who's righteous isn't going to mistreat animals. God understands the suffering of animals. And if someone is going to mistreat an animal, then it's something that, that I, I believe that God would be, that God would not be happy with. All right. So um, it's different than humans, but 
we should be careful that we don't mistreat anyone, right? We want to have compassion on anyone. We don't want to see anything in pain or treat anyone poorly, any animal poorly. All right. So that's kind of what I think about uh, that. All right. So thank you, Sean, for your question. I really do appreciate it. Um, we have, let's see if we've got another question here. We have a question from Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, in Matthew 1.16, the genealogy of Jesus says, Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. Is this the same Jacob and Joseph in the book of Genesis? Uh, thanks, Elizabeth, for your question. No, they're separated by a lot of time. Um, so uh, Joseph, very common name. Uh, Jacob, very common name, right? Jacob means Israel, very common name. So no, these are not the same Jacob and Joseph that are in the book of Genesis. Uh, that would have been some 2,500 years before that. I'm trying to think. Yep, yeah, probably 2,500 years uh, before this Jacob and Joseph. So that's a lot of time that had passed between them. All right. So thank you for your question. I appreciate that. We have another question here from Linzalel Brooks. Uh, I pray for my children every day. They are not saved. Do you have to be saved before God helps them in their lives? Thank you. Um, I appreciate your question. Um, no, they don't have to be saved before God would help them in their lives. But also, I would pray that God would save them. If they're not saved, the most important thing would be that they would be saved and that God would do whatever he has to do, which sometimes is crisis for people. So I pray, Lord, when I'm praying for someone who doesn't believe, Lord, let them believe, grant them repentance, grant them salvation and do whatever you have to do to bring them to you. That's our prayer. But when you're praying for them that, you know, something good would happen to them or something bad wouldn't happen for them. Uh, no, I believe that your God hears your prayers and answers your prayers based on them, based on your prayers to God. Um, the Bible talks about your children being holy when they're living under your roof. So small children being holy when you're there living under your roof, when they get to the age of accountability, then they have to make decisions on their own. But God will work on your, on your behalf for your children or work for your children on your behalf as you call out and pray to them. All right. So thank you very much for uh, your question. I appreciate that. Uh, we have another question here from Sharon. Sharon says, in regards to the practice of sin, would you please explain more specifically what this means by using practical examples of, of today's most prevalent sins? So the passage that I'm thinking of comes from the book of Galatians, where it gives this list of sins, and it's a big list of sins that it brings. And then it says at the end of it, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So we're talking about practice. We're not talking, we're talking about someone that has unconfessed, unrepented sin in their lives. We're not talking about someone that is trying to walk with God. And the Bible says that walk in the spirit, you will not fulfill the lust of the flesh, but the flesh battles against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. So we don't do what we want. And if anyone says that they don't have any sin, they deceive themselves and the truth is not in them. So we sin and we ask God to forgive us. But if you're practicing sin, like a doctor practices medicine 
Allen Iverson said, we're talking practice here. We're not talking about a game. We're talking about practice. But when you are practicing a sin, then that'll tell you something is wrong between you and God. It needs to be repented from. Um, and if you continue to practice that, it's evidence that you don't really have a relationship with him. So that's what I think that those passages are talking about. Um, we could talk about today's most prevalent sins. Um, uh, I don't know that I want to get into a ton of examples about certain sins uh, because, um, I don't know, just the more you talk about sin, the more it seems there seems to be some kind of a temptation uh, that comes along with that. Um, I would rather just say, well, look, there are people who struggle with strongholds. Maybe it's an addiction, maybe it's something else, and they need to handle it. They need to ask God to forgive them. And even though it may be something you're struggling with, make it right with him. Lord, I'm sorry, help me. I wanna be able to take care of this. I don't wanna do it. There's a sanctifying process and God is peeling away. Like our sin in our lives is oftentimes like an onion and, and layer by layer, it has to be taken away. And God is doing that in, in the lives of individuals that really have made a commitment to him. So I do hope that that is helpful, Susan. Uh, I think it's pretty self-explanatory that if you're practicing sin, you have unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life that um, you're, you, you need to take care of it. Otherwise, you're not going to make it all the way. You're not gonna make it into heaven if you're practicing those things. That's what the Bible says. Um, so along those same lines, we have a question that was submitted a while ago. Do you have any advice to help me control my thoughts? This was one that was permitted, um, uh, given in a previous uh, Q&A. So um, do you have any advice on how to control my thoughts? And I do. So the Bible says taking every thought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Uh, I think it was Martin Luther that is at least credited for saying, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair. Uh, thoughts may go through our mind. These are called intrusive thoughts. And when I have an intrusive thought, I just immediately get it out of my mind. The Bible says whatever's good, whatever's honorable, whatever's holy, whatever is pure, to think on these things. So if you are trying not to, if you're, if you're thinking about a sin and you're trying not to, by just not thinking about that sin. I'm not gonna think about that sin. I'm not gonna think about that sin. Um, maybe you're, you're, you're struggling with lying and, and pride. Pride and lying, so you're telling lies to make yourself look better. And it's something you come back to regularly and you think, I don't wanna do this, I don't wanna do this. The best way to overcome it is to start thinking about the positive. If it's um, a, a sin in your life like lust, and you say, I, wanna, I don't wanna lust, God help me not to lust. And the more you do that, the more you're focusing on lust because you're trying to get rid of it. But instead you say, well, I'm gonna think about whatever's pure, whatever's holy, whatever's lovely. I'm gonna replace those thoughts with good thoughts. Then I do believe that that helps us to control our thoughts and take our thoughts captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. So thank you very much for your question. I hope that's helpful uh, to be able to handle uh, those thoughts. Uh, I, I, it's been good to hang out with you guys today. I hope you guys are blessed. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We will have another Q&A this coming up Wednesday night, uh, Wednesday at three o'clock, Lord willing. I look forward to seeing you guys there. All right, so I'm gonna go ahead and sign off. 
Uh, we have a service in a couple of hours. Uh, we're going to be talking about the rich man and Lazarus explained. Um, so there's a lot that's there, a lot of really good lessons from us to learn. So you can, if you're in Tucson, you can come to, to the Wet East campus for our service tonight. And then we'll have three services tomorrow morning. You can join us online. The 6 p.m. service tonight is live online and the 9.45 tomorrow. We'd love to have you join us. So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May you stay really close to Jesus. God bless you guys. I'm going to sign out now. We will see you next time on Truth Quest.